Okay, so here's, here's what we're going to do tonight. I am not going to start with reading the scripture passage because we're going to cover so much scripture that I'd rather read it as we go along. Otherwise, I'm going to read a big, long chunk, and then we're going to read it over again as we get into it bit by bit. I hope that's okay. I know that's not our normal uh, format. This is going to be a bit more like sort of tracing the narrative of the story and seeing how these ideas unfold and develop. The, the prophets sometimes are difficult to read, without a doubt. Sometimes you have to take big sections um, to see connections that are really important. As a matter of fact, I think one of the reasons that people have, um, you know, cast skepticism, for instance, on the idea that in chapter 7, where Isaiah talks about Emmanuel, God with us, and this child, Emmanuel, a lot of people have doubted, you know, whether he's referring to a future Messiah. I think one of the reasons is because they don't connect chapter 7 with chapter 8. They just look at chapter 7 by itself. So um, to bring out some of the important stuff in this section and to see how these ideas of hope and despair and the Messiah are all intertwined together, we're going to have to look at a big chunk of Scripture. Um, But this is, you know, arguably two of the uh, most famous passages in the book of Isaiah are from chapter 7, the um, reference to Emmanuel, God with us, and also in chapter 9, for unto us a son is given. There's also stuck in here this passage about um, the stumbling stone, uh, which is also a very common theme. In some ways, the most commonly referred to theme in the New Testament from the Old Testament is this idea about Jesus being the stone that will make men stumble. So there's a lot of stuff in this section that has um, big connections to the story of the Bible and the rest of the Bible. Emmanuel literally means God with us. And that's where what we're going to talk about tonight. We start out with the context. The context is set. Now, we've had some context already, right? The first chapter, first five chapters of Isaiah, we covered the first week and talked about how this is a, a time in Israel's history in which um, there's all kinds of problems. People are not listening to the Lord. By the time we get to this chapter, um, Isaiah has been called into ministry. We looked at that last week in Isaiah chapter 6. And now, you remember King Uzziah had died, and now King Ahaz is on the throne. But at this point, the, um, the people of God have been split into two groups. You have the northern uh, part, which includes 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. There's 12 tribes of Israel, 12 you know, people groups. They're, the 10 northern tribes are called Israel, though they're often in this section also called Ephraim. So it gets a little confusing trying to keep track of who's he talking about. When he's talking about Ephraim or he's talking about Israel, he's talking about the northern ten tribes. They're worse. And then down in the south, you have Judah, which is only two southern tribes. Ahaz is the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. And so as we start this passage, look at chapter 7, verse 1. We're going to pick up uh, the reading there and kind of get the context. What's going on um, in this section of scripture that we're going to talk about tonight. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, king Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem. Jerusalem's where Judah is, okay? But they could not overpower it. Okay, so the northern ten tribes, Israel, and this other nation, Aram, are coming against Judah, the southern two, two tribes. Now the house of David was told, 
Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. The house of David is Judah. Okay, So uh, Judah is told that Aram, this other nation, has allied itself with Israel, the northern tribes, Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. They're concerned. <laughs> this is a big problem for them. What you don't know from this passage, but what you need to understand, is the reason that these two groups are coming against Judah. It's not just for the heck of it. What's happening is Assyria, who is a major superpower, is beginning to move. And they're threatening all of these places around Palestine. And so what Aram and the ten northern tribes, Israel, decide to do is we're going to make an alliance to stand against Assyria. And they want Judah to join their alliance against Assyria. Judah doesn't want to join their alliance. And so the, the Ephraim, Israel, and Aram attack Judah to try to get them to join in the alliance. That's what's going out. So um, the Lord says to Isaiah, while all this is going on, go out. Basically, I'll summarize this next little section. He says, go out and meet the king of Judah, Ahaz. Go meet him and give him this message. Tell him, basically, to just hold on. Don't do anything. Trust the Lord. Don't make an alliance. Don't join in with Aram and Ephraim. And don't join in with Assyria. Now, in the section Isaiah, you don't know this, but as you, if, if you check out the, the corresponding passage in 2 Kings, you'll find that eventually Ahaz makes an alliance with Assyria to protect himself against these two other guys that want him to ally with them. Instead, he allies with Assyria. That's not a good plan either. What, um, what God is telling him to do is to trust God rather than military alliances. And so you jump down to verse 6. Here's what Ephraim and um, Aram have decided. It says, they've said, let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you, do not, you will not stand at all. What's Isaiah saying? He's saying, look, these two countries, they may seem very threatening, but the head of them is only a guy, a person. The implication is the head of Judah is Jerusalem, and the head of Jerusalem is the Lord Almighty. So stand firm and trust him. Well, let's pray together, and then we're going to dig into this and go through the rest of this passage. Lord, we do thank you that even in this passage, even in the midst of this dark time that seemed like there was no hope, yet, Lord, you spoke of the ultimate hope. You spoke of your commitment to be God with us, Emmanuel. And you also spoke here of the way your ways are so different than what we would expect. The idea that you would rescue through the birth of a child. Lord, help us to understand the significance of that, both for Isaiah's day and for ours. And we ask you to help us in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. 
So the context is set. Assyria is on the move. Ahaz, the king of Judah, is pressured to join this alliance. He doesn't want to do it. God tells Isaiah to meet Ahaz, trust in God, and says to him, this will not happen. Right? God says, these nations can't even be compared to me. So stand in faith. Then the next thing that happens, look down here in verse 12, or verse um, 10, sorry. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz and said, ask the Lord for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. Now, if you've been around Christians a little bit, you might have heard things like, it's not a good thing to ask God for a sign. Um, as a matter of fact, Jesus said, it's a wicked generation that demands a sign. But here, God says to Ahaz, ask for a sign. Whatever it is, whether it's in the highest heavens or the deepest depths, ask for it. Ahaz says in verse 12, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, that might sound nice. It might sound pious. It might sound religious. It's not a good thing to put the Lord to the test, so it sounds like a good answer. But the Lord doesn't see it that way. Isaiah says this, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which in Hebrew means God with us. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. All right, what's going on here? Ahaz refuses what the Lord asks him to do. It's not a sign of faith. It's couched in pious religious words. But at his heart of hearts, he does not want to trust the Lord. We know that because of the way God responds. God, see, you don't demand signs from God. It's not the right thing to do. But when God offers you a sign to encourage your faith, it's not a good idea to say, nah, I don't need that. The Lord knows that he needs a sign and he refuses it, which is a way of saying, um, I, don't, I don't need you, God. I don't need you. It's proof that he does not want to believe and he does not want to trust the Lord. And as we know from 2 Kings, that's exactly what was going on. Because rather than submit to God and trust him, instead what he does is he tries to make a deal with Assyria, thinking that Assyria will protect him from the more immediate threat. But it does not go well. It does not go well. Because eventually Assyria becomes their enemy. Now, what about this sign? See, here's what's interesting. God says, ask me for a sign. Ahaz says, no, I would never put the Lord to the test. I don't need a sign. And God says, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. But it's a strange sign, isn't it? What, what in the world is going on here? What is this sign? The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. How are we to make sense of this sign? 
Now, the, uh, the point I made earlier, I'm going to make it again. To understand this sign and what it means, you have to look at 7, 8, and 9 together, and we're going to do that. And I hope by the end of this, you'll understand why this sign uh, is given. This section of Isaiah is very tightly woven. Themes come in and out. Um, and yet, as you look at this idea of the sign and this, this sort of the future that lays ahead, for Ahaz and for Judah, if you look at that in these next couple chapters, here's the, the tension that is all through this section. On the one hand, the sign seems to have something to do with a very near future event. And you see it here. He says, look, before this boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, in other words, very soon, because a child, it doesn't take them very long before they can understand the difference between right and wrong. So that's what he's saying. Is the time that it would take a child to grow up to learn the difference between right and wrong. Before that happens, these two kings that you dread will be laid waste. So that makes the sign seem like it's an immediate sign that's to take place in the very near future. And yet, as you go on, over in chapter 8, this idea of Emmanuel comes up again. And this time you find that this Emmanuel is going to come after Israel and Judah are laid waste. So do you see the tension here? On the one hand, the sign of Emmanuel is a sign about something that's going to happen within the space of a few years. But on the other hand, the sign of Emmanuel is not going to really be fulfilled until after Judah and Israel are laid waste. And those aren't the same time. Those aren't the same time. So how do we make sense of this? How do we make sense of this? Well, hopefully we're going we're gonna to get into that. Let me just say something first here about this word virgin. Because I know that a lot of people have heard from classes or from textbooks or whatnot that this word should not be translated virgin. It should be translated young woman. And that when Matthew quotes this passage in his gospel to refer to the virgin birth that he was wrong uh, because he misunderstood the Hebrew, that the Hebrew went, meant young woman rather than virgin. You've heard this idea? Anybody? I don't know how much time. I don't want to spend too much time on this. I printed out a page that will answer this in more detail. But let me just say this. There are two Hebrew words that can be used for a virgin. Alma is the one used here in verse 14. And there's another word, betula. Genesis 24 is very interesting if you look at these two words, because they're both used there as well. Rebecca is described there as a female and as being of marriageable age, and the word used there is betula. And then this is added that she had never laid with a man. So in Genesis 24, you find that the word betula, which is what a lot of scholars have tried to argue is the word math... Or Isaiah should have used if he wanted to say virgin. He should have used Betula. But in Genesis 24, Betula does not in and of itself mean virgin. That's why Genesis 24 includes the detail that this Betula had never laid with a man. If that was inherent in the word Betula, they wouldn't have to say that. Okay. Then later, after Rebecca has been gotten to know a little better, it uses the word Alma to describe her, and this time it doesn't add the detail that she hasn't laid with a man. Why? Because Alma means she's never laid with a man. It means virgin. That's the word that Isaiah uses here. 
And there's a lot more I could say about it. I printed it out on a little page for you if you want to go deeper into that. For most of you, you may not care that much, other than to say that Isaiah uses a word that doesn't make any sense. To say that a virgin is going to be with child. To say that a woman who has never been with a man is going to be with child, and that's going to be a sign. Oh, you bet that's going to be a sign. Right? Listen, people in previous eras and previous ages were not more gullible than us. They knew that virgins didn't have babies. And they knew that people didn't walk on water. And they knew that the dead didn't rise. That's why these things are regarded as signs. So we have this sort of double sign in these chapters. A sign that a a child is going to be born. And before that child can grow to the age of knowing the difference between right and wrong... These nations are going to be laid waste. This threat is going to be gone. Yet, yet, Ahaz has already refused to trust in God. And so there is a fuller consummation of this sign. God is saying, even though you've not listened to me, even though you've not trusted in me, I'm going to give you a sign of God with us. A sign that a virgin will have a child named Emmanuel, to name Emmanuel, all right? So who is this Emmanuel? He can't just be any normal kid. Look over in chapter 8, or look down on your paper a little bit. In chapter 8, verse 8, it says this, talking about what Assyria is going to do, how they're going to come in and wipe out Judah and run all over it. In verse 8 it says about Assyria, and it will sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, the land of Judah, and reaching up to the neck. Assyria, its outspread wings, will cover the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So here in the very next chapter, Emmanuel is the one who is regarded as possessing the land, as owning the land. That's not just any kid. That's a very strong thing. As a matter of fact, this possessive Hebrew construction here is only ever used of God. It's not the way you would describe somebody's backyard. So that's a very strong statement and one that makes it impossible for you to think that what Isaiah means by Emmanuel is just a baby. It's somebody very special. Somebody who can be described as possessing the land. It's his land. What else would you say about this? Well, uh, we know as well, if you look down two more verses, verse 10 of chapter 8. Well, this is what's interesting. Okay, so that's, you know, verse 8 there, O Emmanuel, about your land. But then it shifts into this interesting place in in verse 9 of chapter 8, where now Isaiah is speaking to the remnant of people who, even in the midst of this unbelieving nation, are trusting God. And here is what is promised. And and the way God makes this promise is by addressing the nations that would seek to completely wipe out God's people. And God says this, raise the war cry, you nations, and be shattered. It's like Psalm 2. You can rage against God and his people, but God will take care of his own. Raise the war cry, you nations, and be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands, the distant lands and the nations are the ones who would wipe out Seek to utterly wipe out God's people. He says, prepare for battle, you nations, and be shattered. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not succeed, for God is with us. 
Because, literally, because Emmanuel. Why will God's people not be utterly wiped out? Because Emmanuel. Now, it would not make much sense for God to say, the whole basis of your security as a people is just some random kid. No. There's too much, too much weighing on this. Emmanuel is somebody more than just an ordinary kid. Some people have said, well, you know, at the beginning of chapter 8, Isaiah is told that he's to go uh, have sex with his wife, and then she's going to have a child, and maybe that's the child that's, that's talked about as Emmanuel. But I don't think that works either, because Isaiah gives this child a name, and it's a very specific name that is a prophetic word itself. So here you'd have contradictory prophetic words about the name of this child. The child is never called Emmanuel. The child has a different name, and that name is important and, and told to us in the story. So all of this stuff points to something more than just a normal child. And as, the, as this uh, little section goes on, we're going to see more about that when we get over into chapter 9. Okay, so, so the only explanation for this prophecy and this promise about Isaiah, about Emmanuel is that Isaiah, even in the midst of this dark, dreary situation which Ahaz has not listened to God and Assyria is coming for them, the only explanation for what Isaiah writes here is that he was given a vision of the birth of one who would change everything. And that's what he records for us here. He is able to see, see the birth of the future Messiah. Now, the NIV obscures this because they don't translate a Hebrew word that is an important word. Verse 14 starts with, Behold, look, see this. It says, Behold, the virgin. In other words, saying, here's a vision, here's what I see. The virgin will be with child, and he will be called Emmanuel. This is what I see. Even in the midst of all this darkness, even though what Ahaz is doing is threatening to wipe out the seed line of the Messiah. So you've got to understand, when Ahaz refuses to trust God, it puts God's whole plan in jeopardy from a human perspective. Do you, do you remember what we read there in chapter 7? What do, what do Aram and Ephraim want to do? They want to tear Judah apart, and they want to put the son of, what was it, Tamiel, on the throne. In other words, what's being emphasized is we want to cut off and end forever the reign of David. Well, what's so important about that is that God has promised that the Messiah would come through David's seed line. And so what, 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 what these two nations want to do is not just wipe out Judah. They want to stop Jesus from ever coming into this world. And you have to see that there's a bigger plot going on than merely on a human political level. But God says that will not happen. And, is, and Isaiah is given the privilege of seeing the birth that God is committed to bringing. You understand? All right, but, but this child will not have an easy time of it. 
Look at this um, section here. It's in verse 15 of chapter 7. It says that this boy will eat curds and honey. Now that might sound like a good thing, but it's actually a way of saying that this child will be born into poverty and desperate situation. Because curds and honey, it's different than milk and honey. Curds and honey is basically a way of saying you're scraping whatever you can from the land. You're not able to cultivate anything. You have to make do with what the land naturally produces. So what he's saying is, Ahaz, what you've done has not thwarted God's commitment to send Emmanuel and to be God with us. But when God comes to be with us, he's going to be born into poverty and he's going to be born into the despair of his people Israel. That's what he's saying here. All right. In other words, the implications of Ahaz's unbelief are huge and long-lasting. Jesus is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief because Ahaz refuses to trust the Lord. And it's only right that Jesus should be a man of sorrows because all of God's people are going to be sorrowful because of what he's done here. What Ahaz would do in the next few years before a child would grow to know right from wrong would affect the history of God's people forever. Alec Mortier, brilliant commentator on Isaiah, puts it this way. I think this is so great. Listen to this. He says, every next king in David's line, Ahaz's son and son and son and son, on down the line, every one of them was going to be the focus of a longing that he would be the Messiah. Would this be the son of David who would deliver us people? And every actual king, who wasn't the Messiah, was the guardian of that longing inasmuch as he might be the Messiah's father. You never know. To all of this, Ahaz played false. In other words, he rejected all of that. He rejected that privilege and that responsibility by not trusting the Lord. And from the time of Ahaz, there never was again a house of David in a real meaningful sense. From this time on, there was only a continual succession of puppet pretend kings under alien domination until at the exile, even they disappeared into the sands of history forever, never to reemerge. And he goes on and says this, the name of the overlord power would change from Assyria to Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome. But Israel would never be free from this time forward. Right? And so before Emmanuel was born, it would keep changing through all these different overlord powers. But when Emmanuel was born, it was to share the poverty of his people to inherit a non-existent throne and to feel the full weight of the oppressor. The blame for all this rested on Ahaz and his failure to believe the Lord's word. The Lord Jesus should have been born to a real throne by all rights. He deserved it. He's the one by whom all things were made and for whom all things were made. He's the one to whom every knee one day will bow, but he was born... He was born to a non-existent throne, even though he was the king 
of David, right? The king of the Davidic line, the one all of Israel's hopes were pointed to, was born. There wasn't even a throne for him to occupy because God's people had turned from their God. Now, like I said, what actually happens historically is Ahaz makes an alliance with Assyria. And this saves him at least temporarily from the northern threat. But eventually, it proves disastrous. And that's verse 17 brings this out in chapter 7. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim, the ten northern tribes, broke away from the two southern tribes, Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. So you want the king of Assyria? You're going to have him. And then the rest of the, the section of chapter 7 talks about how dreadful it's going to be when the king of Assyria comes. But it's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. God's people will not fully perish because of Emmanuel, right? We read that when I looked at chapter 8, and now we're into chapter 8. Verse 10, even though Assyria is going to come, even though all this dreadful stuff is going to happen that's going to cover the breath of Emmanuel's land, yet the nations will not utterly be able to wipe out God's people. And this is where Isaiah develops one of the most important ideas that you find in Isaiah's uh, book, and it's this, the idea that even in the midst of the disobedience and the unbelief, there is a remnant who will be preserved. This is a hugely important theme to see in the book of Isaiah, because there's all this stuff about judgment and destruction and exile that's coming, but right in with that, you don't get this in every other place in the Old Testament, but Isaiah is privileged to be the one who reveals that the exile is not the end of the story. There is a remnant. There will be a remnant that God will preserve. And in verse 10 of chapter 8, it's linked to, the preservation of this remnant is linked to the fact that Emmanuel is coming. Emmanuel is the reason that the nations will not be able to wipe out God's people and the remnant right? And it's so difficult to believe this. Because look around. You know, Isaiah, look around. The king doesn't want to listen to you. He doesn't want to have anything to do with you. All of the people are clamoring to make an alliance with somebody so that they're not vulnerable. And God says, don't do anything. Just trust me in my word. <laughs> God can be so utterly unpractical sometimes, can't he? Gosh, so annoying. Um, what God tells Isaiah, look at verse 11 of chapter 8, right, if you keep going down here. God, God says to him, look, let me put my hand on you and strengthen you. Do not follow the way of this people. Don't follow the way of this people. Look at verse 13. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And he will be a sanctuary. But for both houses of Israel, he will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. So judgment is coming, but for some, there will be sanctuary. So trust in the Lord. And then he goes on and he says, look, many are going to fall, many are going to stumble, verse 15. But verse 16, God tells Isaiah, bind up the testimony and seal up the law among my disciples. And so what happens in the book of Isaiah is Isaiah starts to gather a group of faithful remnant around him, and they're told to write this stuff down and lock it away and keep it safe. 
Because you're going to need to remember this promise. You're going to need to remember this promise that I'm giving in the midst of this darkness. Even though the situation looks totally bleak, even though Assyria is going to sweep over the land and it's going to be desecrated and desolated, in spite of all that, I am sending Emmanuel. And because of that, you will not be utterly wiped out. But Isaiah, it's hard to believe. So I'm going to put my hand on you. I'm going to steady you. I'm going to say, listen to my word and make sure you take good care of it because it's your hope. All right? It's not going to be easy to live out because most of God's people don't want to believe me. And it's really difficult sometimes. Sometimes it's the hardest to be a Christian around other quote-unquote Christians. It's really hard sometimes to be the one person in your group that says, guys, I don't know if we should be gossiping like this about our friend. It's hard to be, because you don't want to be a prude, right? Isaiah knew what that was like, to be the one to say, guys, I know it seems like a good idea to ally with Assyria, but I don't know. I don't think that's what God wants us to do, right? Isaiah understood how difficult it is to follow God, and particularly how God's quote-unquote people make it really difficult, right? If you've ever been tempted to want to give up following God because of God's people, Isaiah knows exactly what you feel like. And what does God tell him to do? Look at my word. Let my word define reality. Because yes, it's dark. The situation is dire. That's true. But there's something even more true. I'm sending Emmanuel. Well, look at chapter 9, because now we get to the great, the great promise of Isaiah 9. Let's read this. Chapter, chapter 9, start at verse 1. These first seven verses. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, and that was a story from Israel that was a very obvious story that God supernaturally delivered them. That's why the reference. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, saying that God has done it again. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For, because to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now that's a powerful promise and a powerful picture. What's going on here? Notice first, the promise comes to those who are in gloom and to those walking in darkness and distress, living in the shadow of death. Don't be romantic. 
God's people suffer grievously. They're not preserved from the most bitter despair. This is when, this is when the light will dawn. Right? We know from history, again, there was not a time from Ahaz's day until, until a long, long time. Israel was continually subjected to somebody. They ached under the oppression. But into this darkness, God promises a great light. A great light. And you see the reference, even the connection to Genesis. Why shouldn't he send a great light? God is the one who makes light appear in the midst of darkness. He creates life out of death. He creates life out of nothingness. But notice, even though this is a promise... What, look at the tense of the verbs. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. But this is all future. Why the past tense? Because when God speaks a promise, he might as well say it in the past because it's as good as done. It's as good as done. When God promises this is going to happen, he might as well talk like it's already happened because it's that secure and that solid. The darkness is real, but the Lord's promise is more true and more ultimate. And that's the tension of what it means to live as God's people. We are not to be those who pretend that the darkness is not real, who say, oh, there's no gloom. I know Jesus, everything's fine. No. The Bible never calls us to do that. But the Bible does say the darkness is not ultimate. The word of the Lord and his promise is so real and so solid, you can act like it's already been kept. If you are in Christ, the Bible actually can talk about you as already glorified. It does in Romans 8. It says those he justified, he sanctified. Those he sanctified, he glorified. But you're not glorified yet. But the Bible promises that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And it's so secure that it can be spoken of in the past tense, even when it hadn't happened yet. That's what Isaiah is doing here. God promises that what he's going to do, look at this in verse 3, is going to enlarge the nation. It's going to enlarge the nation. What does that mean? Well, if you look back up in verse 1, it talks about Galilee of the Gentiles. And that's a strange phrase. There's not another place in the Bible where Galilee is referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles. What's going on here? God is already alluding to the fact that what's coming is going to be for more than just the Jews. The nation is going to be enlarged. It's going to include even the Gentiles, such that Galilee can be called for the benefit of the Gentiles. And we know that's true. Actually, in chapter 40, uh, I think it's 42, we'll get to it, uh, in one of the servant songs, God says that it's too small a thing for my servant to be a light merely to Israel. It's too small a thing. I wouldn't be satisfied with that. I'm going to also make him a light for the Gentiles. And even here, this idea is already being foreshadowed in the gospel of Isaiah. Uh, what God is going to do is going to be, look at this in verse 4. 
it's going to, it's going to be this, this victory, this battle, that's going to set people free from an enslaving nation. That's the image here. The yoke that burdens you is going to be broken. The bar across your shoulders, the rod of the oppressor is going to be removed. But then look at verse 5. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. It's a bizarre picture. What it's saying is the joy that you're going to experience from when God brings this great light, the joy that you experience will be like having your burden taken away. But when you actually show up on the battlefield, when you get there, the victory's already won. And the, and, and the things used to do battle are already been thrown into the fire. They're not needed anymore. Isn't that an amazing picture of the gospel? That when you enter into a relationship with God, the work has already been done. The work has already been done. It's like to be a Christian means you get to enter into, it's like walking onto a battlefield and the victory's already been won. And you're looking around saying, wait, I thought I had to fight. No, it's already done. You can throw away your, your weapons. Burn them up. You don't need your boots anymore. You don't need the, the, the cloak covered with blood. Throw it away. It's already done. Well, how's this going to happen? And this is the most bizarre thing. Tell me how verse 5 leads to verse 6. But they're definitely linked because verse 6 starts with, because. How is it that you're going to enter onto a battlefield with this great victory behind you and you didn't even have to do it? And Isaiah says, well, of course, it's because a child is born. What? You're going to enter into a victory that's been already accomplished so thoroughly that you can lay down your arms. You don't need to keep adding to the work of Christ. And, and you're going to enter into this work because a child's been born? But that's what he says. For, because the ultimate reason for this victory is the birth of a child. Surely the Lord brings the greatest victories through the most unlikely of means. Through a child? But... It's no normal child, is it? He's born, that's a reference to being born of a woman, but he's also given, a word that's used for God. So he's born of a woman, but he's given by God. He's the embodiment, you look in verse 7, of everything the Davidic kingship was to be. Except he's not just somebody who represents God and the kind of king that we should have. He is himself born divine because he's mighty God. Something you would never Ever, as a Jew, Jewish monotheistic person, you'd never say this about a person, even the king. Even the king. But that's what this child is going to be. Mighty God. Wonderful counselor, right? He's the one who will bear the government on his shoulders, which is the only thing that can remove the burden from your shoulders. But, but why? Why? And this is where we conclude. The zeal of the Lord. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Do you know why that's such good news? Zeal is basically God's jealousy in action. A lot of people don't like this idea that God is a jealous God. But let me tell you what it means and why it's important. The reason it's so important for you to know that God is a jealous God is it means that he will allow no rival to his love. It means that God is not just sort of sitting up there in heaven somewhere, sort of kind of twiddling his thumbs. No, it means that he is passionately, passionately 
involved and zealous and jealous for his people. Do not make light of the fact that our God is a passionate, jealous God. His salvation is full of zealous determination. As Alec Mortier says, this is the Exodus God whose nature is to save his people and overthrow his foes. And brothers and sisters, Jesus on the cross is the ultimate picture of this. What Jesus suffered on a cross was full of passion and agony as he wrought salvation for his people. There was nothing dispassionate about it. And if you think that God just sort of looks at you and is sort of, you know, kind of mildly interested in what you do and in what you love, I've got news for you. Jesus didn't die because God was mildly interested in what you love. Jesus died a torturous death full of agony because God is zealous for you. And it breaks his heart if you're not part of that. Right? Never think of God as merely a philosophical abstraction. He's the zeal, the zealous Lord Almighty. And our hope is secured by his zeal. He wrought salvation for his people with passion and agony on a cross. It was the most unlikely thing you could ever devise. Who would have thought that death would bring life? Well, who could have imagined that the birth of a child would change everything? But this is the way of our God. And this is what Isaiah is pointing us to. Let's pray.